do you hear me? Do you know me? Do you even care? Whatever you say When they take my place Hello and welcome to episode 1300 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Looking at an NPR headline that goes, quote, well, that was fast. Young German speeder earns, loses license in 49 minutes. Now, I have now dated this podcast. We're recording this on Wednesday. I think you're mm-hmm. all listening to this after Thanksgiving, but... What do you think is the shortest amount of time someone has spent in the major leagues? Like, do you think anyone has ever been promoted and then demoted within an hour? How would that happen? Some sort of transaction, other transaction, some sort of trade? Well, there are shadow players, right, who are called up but never actually play. Uh And there was a good story in the Washington Post, I think it was, earlier this year about one of them that was particularly heartbreaking. But that, I guess they're at least in the majors for a day for a game, even though they don't get into the game. They are technically in the majors, but they don't have a baseball reference page that says major leagues. So I don't know. Has there been anyone who gets called up and then sent down immediately because something happened? Probably. There's been a lot of baseball. Yeah. I wonder what it would require. Obviously, we see plenty of cases of guys who get demoted to AAA, but then they're brought back up because somebody got hurt. Maybe mm-hmm. the paperwork was already filed, but then they come right back. So that way we see all the time. But yeah, the major league one, it would it would require some teams not really knowing what's going on, I think, in order to promote a player and then send him right back down immediately. But I don't know. If anybody out there who works for a team or who knows a case like this, if it's even possible or not possible, just let us know and you can do so anonymously. Uh, sign up for anonymous <laughs> at gmail.com and, uh, and then you can tell us the truth. Yeah. You might need yeah. some numbers in there. <laughs> The phantom player I was remembering was Brian Mazzoni, I think Mazzoni, who was called up in a game and uh, his game was rained out when he could have gotten into it. And then he never got back up to the big leagues. It was uh, 2006. He was supposed to make a spot start for the Phillies and uh, Dave Scheinan caught up with him this past year and wrote about it sort of sad. And that happens every now and then. He got closer than almost all people get. So that's something. So later in this episode, we are going to be talking to someone who has not made the majors yet, but still hopes to. His name is Connor Myers, and this is how I found Connor Myers. He tweeted something earlier this week, and I will just read the tweet here. If you or your family are waiting on packages, please keep this in mind. Drivers are doing their best. It probably won't be delivered on time. Delivery trucks look like someone threw a grenade in it. Please be patient. Sincerely, UPS driver, parentheses, I'm just getting home. And that was sent, I think, uh, around 10 o'clock at night. And this is a baseball player. Connor Myers is an outfielder in the Chicago Cubs organization, just got to double A this year. 
but he is also an off-season UPS driver and has been for a few years now. And we have never, I don't think, talked to someone who is a baseball player who also has an off-season job, and that is a reality for a lot of minor league players. So Connor was uh, very open about his life in both his driving job and his playing baseball job. And the extent to which everything that he does is tracked, whether he's at his regular job (laughs) or whether he's at his other regular job. Yeah, that's right. So it sounds as if the Cubs actually have made some changes and some improvements based on talking to Connor in their minor league system when it comes to conditions and food. But obviously, minor leaguers are still not paid a lot. And we've talked about this. We've done interviews and whole episodes about this before. And it's just a fact of life that a lot of minor leaguers have to work an offseason job just to make ends meet during the season. And When everyone talks about the injustice of major league young players pre-free agency, even pre-arbitration players making as little as they do, certainly, yes, they deserve to make more based on their performance. But minor leaguers, as we've often said, they are the ones really getting jobbed. And uh, because of that, they have to do an extra job. So we wanted to talk to someone who does that. And sounds like... The Cubs are at least feeding their players, and that's nice, but there are still compromises that have to be made there. And you might say, well, boo-hoo, he has to actually work year-round like all of us pretty much have to do. It's uh, not such a hardship, but you do really have to scrimp and save to get through the season. And just from a developmental perspective, as we will talk to him about You would think it would behoove baseball teams that are worth billions of dollars and in many cases make million-dollar profits as well from year to year to pour some money into their minor league system so that their players did not have to drive a UPS truck in the offseason but could instead just maximize their potential. So the fact that that still doesn't happen is very silly and unfortunate. Right. And we've talked about all this before, but for as many people as cry out about the, as you said, injustice at the major league level of how many of the most valuable players are underpaid relative to their worth. Realistically, when you are in the majors, we're talking about the 1% of the the baseball players. Everybody who is in the major leagues is doing pretty well financially, if not far, far better than that. Think about last year, so many people upset about like the Neil Walker case. And Neil Walker has made millions of dollars over his career. You don't need to feel that bad for Neil Walker. You can feel worse for someone who's hoping to be the next Neil Walker, the next not necessarily top prospect. Neil Walker wasn't the top prospect, was he? It's hard for me to think that Neil Walker was a top prospect. I'm just going to assume without confirmation that he wasn't. And you you, you want to think about the next Neil Walker. You want to think our team's doing enough to try to find and develop the next Neil Walker. The, the real battleground in terms of money here. I know that major league players are responsible for so much of the revenue, if not, you could say, all of the revenue that is uh, poured into the major league coffers. And I get that Mm -hmm. it's important to talk about the split in revenues between players and owners, but it is most important, I think, to focus on the players who aren't getting paid almost at all, as opposed to the players who are getting more than half of a million dollars as a league minimum per Mm -hmm. season. So the real battleground is in the minor leagues. We talked to Connor Myers about that a little bit, but of course, very, very few active minor league players want to be put on the spot and talk about how they are uh, getting screwed by their bosses because they also want to climb the ladder, which only makes sense. So yeah. anyway, if you are going to complain about money in baseball, complain about the people who make nothing before you complain about the people who make a lot. Mm-hmm. By the way, Neil Walker, top 100 prospect, according to Baseball America, four times, you four years in a row. Effing <laughs> kidding me? Yeah. Neil yeah. Walker. <laughs> he top 
topped out at number 43 on the top 100 list. So how about that? What years are we talking about? 2005 to 2008. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I remember very little about those years. Those were the uh, the Delman Young years, I think. Yeah. So, okay. I never would have ever guessed that to be true, but thanks for it. Drafted 11th overall in 2004. Wow. There's a lot about Neil Walker's career I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So we are, as you mentioned, pre-recording this conversation before Thanksgiving, and you are listening to it after Thanksgiving. So we don't know if Jerry DePoto did make a trade on Thanksgiving Day. We'll talk about it next week. So only one thing that I wanted to ask about, because this is somewhat evergreen, or at least two weeks evergreen, and you wrote about it, Yusei Kikuchi, who is uh, this year's most intriguing Japanese free agent player who is going to be posted. So tell us about Kikuchi. You wrote about him, and I Obviously, he is not another Otani or even another Matsuzaka or Darvish, but pretty good pitcher. I'm going to stop you there. Okay, Neil Walker was a top 100 prospect after 2004, <laughs> 2005, 2006, and 2007. His OPSs yeah. as a what? What even was he? He was a okay. So he was a catcher. He was drafted as a catcher. And then he became a third baseman. <laughs> wow. Okay, Neil well, Walker's just wow, completely I'm different just... guy than the one we know. <laughs> but in in 2005, he allowed 92 stolen bases. You can allow that many stolen bases in 83 games? Wow. And then he threw out 54 guys. He's no longer a catcher. Neil Walker, his OPSs over those years, 738, 769, 733, 784. He topped out at 13 home runs. Neil Walker, not that special of a player, it seems like, in the minor leagues. And yet, just continuously over. So, Yusei Kikuchi, uh, he's, he's coming over. He's going to be posted soon. He has to be posted by December 5th under some new posting rules. And at that point, that will uh, kick off a 30-day negotiation window, by which point, uh, by the end of which, he has to have agreed to terms, or I guess, I don't know gone back that seems unlikely but anyway he's coming over and he is not Shohei Otani Shohei Otani can do a lot of things that you can you say Kikuchi cannot do like keep his fastball around 100 miles per hour for a whole game and mm-hmm. also do the hitting part <laughs> you say Kikuchi has three hits on record in Japanese baseball in more than three at bats one of them was for extra bases it was not a home run so he's coming over and he is he's interesting because all starting pitchers or really all pitchers who come try to come over from Japan and Korea are interesting because they're just so much less known it's not like a minor league prospect because i think people understand minor league prospects in context but people don't have a great understanding of what the context is like in japan and korea and these are leagues where the best players are major league capable but the the worst players are nowhere even close so i think kikuchi can get his fastball up into the high 90s but realistically he last year he averaged about 92 miles per hour a hair under and he, he missed a little time with a shoulder injury. But just in terms of his repertoire, he's a lefty. But he looks a lot like Miles Michaelis or maybe even more Kenta Maeda, who are two pitchers who came to the majors, or in Michaelis's case, back to the majors after pitching and starting in, in Japan. All of them throw their fastballs in the low 90s. Maeda, in particular, favors a slider. When he was in Japan, he favored his slider quite a bit, just about as much as Kikuchi did and does. And so you're looking at a guy who throws a low 90s fastball with a good slider in the mid-80s, also has a curveball and changeup that he throws sometimes. And Kikuchi is not like a huge strikeout pitcher, not like Otani, but the, the average strikeout rate in Japan is lower than it is in the major leagues. In Maeda's case, we actually saw his strikeout rate go up when he faced major league competition, which is kind of incredible when you think about the players he was facing. So mm-hmm. I think there is, there's proof of concept that someone who has Kikuchi's 
profile in the NPB can work and work pretty well in the majors, which is why he's going to get a job. He's going to be hotly pursued. I don't know what his medicals are going to look like. I know that Kenta Maeda signed like an eight-year contract for $25 million with just a, a boatload of incentives because the Dodgers hated his uh, his medical exams. I think, I think he might have failed his first physical or something, just shoulder and elbow problems just out the wazoo. So Maeda mm-hmm. had some issues, but he's been good. He's been fairly durable. And Kikuchi, well, his shoulder is going to be closely examined, but just based on his performance, he looks like a pretty good number two or number three pitcher. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, we can look forward to seeing someone bid for his services sometime soon. So later in the show, I will be talking to Jay Jaffe about the Hall of Fame season, just previewing who's on the ballot, who's going to get in, the big questions about this year. But first, we will be back with Connor Myers, who is an off-season UPS driver. I know many major leaguers used to work off-season jobs, if not most, or at least they would barnstorm or something if they didn't have a, a second career. But it's just not something you see often at that level. Every now and then there's like a Ross Ollendorf or someone who just has a, an interest that he wants to pursue in the offseason. And so he has a second job for that reason. But in the minors, it is much more common. And uh, we'll be back in just a moment with Connor to tell us about it. In a he looked like Elvis. In a certain way, he feels like Jesus. Dreams of them just as they can, but it's only the humble delivering man. Infield as straight as can be, steal right foot back, right foot up, and the lefty over the top fastball hit in the air, pretty deep to center. Myers, the center fielder, over his left shoulder. All right, so I was going to try to come up with some kind of clever intro for our guest about how he takes roots in right field and center field all summer, and then he drives roots in the winter, and everything I tried to come out with just came out really corny. So other than saying that I was going to attempt to do that, I'm not going to do that. We are joined now by Connor Myers, who is an outfielder in the Chicago Cubs organization, and over the offseason, he is a UPS driver who just got off his shift. Hey, Connor. How are we doing today? Doing well. So for people who haven't seen you, don't know about you, give us a little self-scouting report. What kind of player are you? Uh, I'm a player that likes to go get it in the outfield. Uh, he can run. Doesn't miss many baseballs in the outfield. Getting his hitting down. Uh, hit a lot better this year than last year. But uh feels good about uh, the future with baseball in the Cubs organization. So you've been in the system for a few years now, since 2016, and you've been doing this off-season gig since then too, basically, right? Was this something that started your first off-season as a player, or was it before then? Uh, first off-season as a player, my dad's best buddy. I think he was his best man at his wedding. I've been working with UPS for 30 years, so he's about to retire. And uh, my dad asked him if uh, there are any spots for, like, Reg Temps, which is like an off-season driver or a seasonal driver. And uh, said, yeah, they're always hiring. So I went in and applied for it. Pretty much got it because of him because he has tenure there. And I uh, had to go down to Largo, Maryland to do training for five days, pretty much just to see if you're safe and know how to drive a big truck. And so I passed, and I've been driving ever since. So, so when uh, when you have occasion to tell people that uh, you're they see you're driving a truck, or you're in the uniform, and you tell people that you're a professional baseball player during the during the summer, what kind of response do you usually get? 
He's like, oh, really? Like, why do you do that? And I kind of just tell him, you know, I was a 27th round draft pick out of college. So, you know, you got to find your way to make some money in the offseason besides doing lessons. So, I mean, I get done a lot. I get, hey, why, why don't you drive for UPS? You know, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I actually really enjoy it. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. You stay active. It's always working your brain just to find out where this next house is, where your next package goes, all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's a cool gig in the offseason. So I, I don't like, hey, I'm a UPS driver in the offseason, you know, but they understand when, when they find out why I do it. Yeah. So take us through a day at work in the offseason. What are you doing exactly? Well, I get to the uh, center at 7.30. I usually wake up at 6, get breakfast, all that stuff. 25-minute drive to the center. When I get to the center, I find my board, which is my the thing that scans all the packages. Go to my truck, see if it's in good condition or not, because uh, packages are still coming down the belt. Once I get there, I kind of get all of my sorts about me. Then I get in there, try to sort all the packages in order of like where the first stop is going to be, where the last stop is going to be. Sometimes I can't even walk through the center of my truck because I have so many big packages. <laughs> it's really a whirlwind when you first get in there because you're just trying to like keep your composure because today... When I got in there, I have a small, I have the smallest UPS truck, that's a 500, and I have 293 packages on there. 293 packages doesn't don't fit on a uh, a 500 series truck, so I had to take a whole bunch of stuff off, figure out how to put it on so it fit. So that took me a good hour to do. That's why I get to the center early, and then I just go out, deliver at 8.45, that's our start time, get out there, and hopefully it goes well, you know? I mean, today it went well. I got off at 4.30, but then they said I needed to help somebody else get some packages off. I took 45 stops from another person. So it's, it's, a, it's a whirlwind, I'll tell you that. It's, it's fun, but it's definitely, it's definitely a whirlwind. I would imagine when, uh, when you get to be in the major leagues, then there's no pressure situation quite like when you get to the playoffs when the spotlight is, is its brightest. And now, of course, as, a, as an offseason UPS driver, you are, you're in a stretch run here and you're coming up on the, uh, <laughs> the playoff equivalent of, of being a delivery guy, I guess, when you're coming up on the, uh, the holiday season. So do you think do you, think you have the, uh, the metal, the emotional stability to handle uh, being in the spotlight and having to do your job with so much pressure on? Yeah, yeah I, I love interacting with customers. Um, like we just had a big snowstorm recently, so that's why we're kind of like backed up uh, in the center. So I just I you know interact with the customers, tell them what's going on at the center, so they get an idea of why they aren't getting their packages on time and stuff like that. But during that peak season that you were just talking about, it, it gets really hectic in the center. You can't walk to your truck. You can't walk to your truck. You can't even walk in the center. There's so many packages in there. So um, I mean, yeah, it, it's it's definitely you definitely have to keep your composure. And I go back to Darnell McDonald. He's our mental skills. I guess coordinator, one of our coordinators, mm-hmm. breathe in, blue, out, red. So I focus on, you know, breathing during that, not, you know, freaking out and all that stuff. But it's, def- it's definitely uh, definitely something for somebody that has to keep their composure. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Could you elaborate on, on that, the breathing in and, and breathing out? I, I talked to a couple of people from the mental skills department on another podcast, but tell me from your perspective, what kind of lessons you've learned from that? I've learned to really not take anything for granted. I mean, we're playing a kid's game. You're going to go through failures in, in life. You're going to go through failures in baseball, whatever. It's just part of the game. So you just have to – I think the biggest the biggest thing is – it sounds cliche, but learning to deal with your adversities like in a, in a high manner so you're not like really getting down on that, that low, low. You, you know, you got to stay high, but you can't stay too high. So it, it, you really got to stay balanced in, in everything you're handling and – with what Darnell's saying, like breathe in, breathe out, it sounds like a simple task, but a lot of us don't know really how to 
we know how to breathe, but we just do it without thinking. But when you think about it, like you're breathing, when you think about how you do it, breathe in for five seconds, hold it for a second, breathe out for five seconds. It really does a, it, it does a toll on you. Like it really, really helps you out. It really calms you down. So like in the one deck circle, you know, before a game with the national anthem, all that stuff, I take those things in and really focus on doing those little two second, five second breaths to get myself locked into any situation. Even I find myself doing it in UPS. It sounds weird, but <laughs> I find myself doing it when I have a very, very stressful day where I can't find the package I need. I just really breathe in, breathe out, and all that stuff. So it, it really helps me out. So you you played for both Myrtle Beach and Tennessee this year, the high A and double A affiliate of the Cubs. And do you have a, I, I'm sure you've kept in touch with many of your teammates. Do you know how many of them are also working off-season jobs right now? Honestly, I know Zach Short, you've probably heard his name before. He used to work with UPS. There's a lot of guys that do lessons. Some guys do like yard work and all that stuff, like cutting grass when it's obviously hotter outside, but not not too many, honestly, but a decent amount, I guess. Yeah, and a lot of people will say, well, yeah, minor leaguers don't get paid that much, but they get those bonuses and those go a long way. And for some guys, they do, but for 27th rounders, probably not so much. Can you give us any idea of uh, how long that lasted you? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not afraid to say it. Um, I was drafted in the 27th round at Old Dominion. Uh, I got a $5,000 signing bonus, which is a lot more than a lot of seniors. But yeah, I got $5,000 uh, after taxes. I think it was like two payments of $1,600. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very grateful that I got drafted by the Chicago Cubs and everything, but $5,000 doesn't get you too, too far. So, no. I mean, I really, the, the first thing I did was bought myself a PS4, not going to lie. <laughs> um, bought myself a PS4 in Eugene, Oregon. So, and that, I still use it to this day. Like I watch Netflix, a lot of stuff on it, but yeah, that money didn't, didn't last too long. I mean, I do my best with saving it. And that's another reason why I also have to work an all season job. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, it, it didn't last me too long and it's not that I'm bad with money, but it's just obviously, you know, $1,600. I put, I put some of it away, but it, it didn't last me too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and so what about your regular season salaries? I mean, how are you making ends meet? during the season obviously this is a necessity right it's not like you're just doing this to save up money for the future this is something you have to do to get through the year oh yeah I'm, I'm definitely making this money right now to take it through you know when i stay in an apartment in the in the season in tennessee or wherever i'm going to end up yeah it's definitely getting these first couple months in the books with this money hopefully i can make enough to where i can you know put some of it away so i don't have to worry about paying for it or i can stay in a host family i don't even know but yeah, all of this is for the season coming up, and uh, hopefully I can make enough to make ends meet with the season coming up. Um, I mean, it's a couple months away, so I still got some time, and I got some lessons still lined up. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely making ends meet. So, I mean, I, I enjoy it. Though. It's, I, I, make, I take it as a game. I mean, yeah, it's making money to spend money, which I mean is what we do. But it, it's it's cool to it's cool to make money just to pay you know pay rent for a little fun job that I'm doing with baseball, you know? <laughs> so during the offseason, obviously you're, you're very busy doing your uh, deliveries, but you know, many people would say that playing baseball as a professional is a full-time 12 month a year job. And it's something where yeah. if you, uh, if you're not working to, to make yourself better then what are you really doing? So to what extent are you able, if at all, to work on your, your own baseball skills during the winter? You said that you have some lessons lined up, but as far as I know, that's you giving lessons and not necessarily receiving them. Yeah, that's correct. No, I work out four times a week. My schedule is very hectic when it's the days that I work out. My trainer is very lenient with my timing, as in like when I can get there and stuff. Usually it's at six o'clock. 
recently this this week I haven't been getting off until about six thirty. Uh, actually, Monday I got off at eight fifteen. So I had to message him and tell him, hey, like I'm going to be running a little bit late. I mean, he's very very lenient, like I said, with my workouts. So he's going to be there for me. I work out four days a week. I hit three days a week. I'm starting to throw again. So they're long days, but hey, I mean, it's it's worth it. Um, I'm still I still got energy, all that stuff. So yeah, I'm still getting all that stuff in, getting lessons in, and, and everything. So it's it's going really well for me right now. Mm-hmm. Are there things you would be able to do or be able to do more easily if you had all the money in the world and didn't have to work an off-season job? I mean, are there you know facilities you would go or technology you'd get or just more sleep or better food or whatever something that would improve your odds? Yeah, I mean. We could all say that, right? I mean, having more money would make everything better. But I mean, I've always been that person that's been an underdog. So I like, I don't mind, I don't mind the grind. So, you know, like we call it, but yes, of course, if I had more money, I could get, you know, more machines that I could use, like recovery tools, all that stuff. But as of now, like I'm working for that big goal, like, you know, we all are. So I'm, I'm not too, too worried about having like all that money, like we were just talking about, because I'm like, what I'm doing now. I'm working out at Prime Performance in Gaithersburg. Tommy Johnson is his name. Um, he played minor league ball with the Mariners. He's got a great facility down there. He's got wrap soda machines to measure, you know, a launch angle, how hard you hit the ball, how far you hit the ball, all that stuff. Got a whole bunch mm-hmm. of machines to figure out um, hit tracks, all that stuff, to make sure like your pelvic tilt and all that stuff is in good position. Mm-hmm. So I got I got I got a good amount of machines now, and I'm paying for it. So it's definitely worth worth my time and stuff like that. So. I'm enjoying what what I have going on right now. I'm sure as as far as the grind is concerned, so much of it is psychological and making sure that you stay in a positive frame of mind, anything that you can do to sort of drive your own motivation. And I was I was curious, someone who, who this season emerged with the Dodgers at the major league level, even made it onto the postseason roster was Caleb Ferguson, minor league starter, but, you know, effective major league reliever, piled up the strikeouts. And it just so happens that a few years ago, you hit your second career professional home run off of Caleb Ferguson. I was wondering if that, does that mean anything to you when you see a guy like that just emerge at the highest level and, and know that you at least were able to take him deep once, one of the first times you faced him? Honestly, to be serious with you, I didn't know he was a big leaguer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay, so Connor Myers, let me tell you something about Caleb Ferguson. <laughs> yeah, he's a he killed it this year. He came up with the Dodgers. <laughs> when when you just said this, I was like, okay, um, I'm sorry, I don't know. No, but I mean, obviously, like that, that shows you that I I'm not being like you know I'm not being mean or anything, but I just didn't know. Like I'm just out there playing the game. Like I guess that's just how I play. Like I don't think about too much. I just go up there and just play. I mean. I mean, it, looking back now that you said that, it's, it's it's freaking cool that I did that. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't pay attention to that stuff. I, I don't want to sound rude or anything, but yeah, I just don't pay attention. Yeah. So you started out in rookie ball, and you've worked your way all the way up to Double A this past year. How has that changed? conditions at all kind of your day-to-day life in terms of living situation or salary or food or you know just anything that affects the quality of your minor league life i mean um living situations uh, have been actually very good at the cubs organization they take care of you very very well rookie ball we stayed in eugene eugene oregon stayed in a nice hotel about a mile away so i biked to the bike to the field every day south bend i stayed in a uh which is low a i stayed in a um apartment with five guys it was kind of packed but it was cool um it was about a mile away again uh didn't have a car 
so we had a carpool, which is the usual pretty much with uh, with guys that are, live farther away from, uh, you know, the places they're playing. Mm-hmm. Myrtle Beach, I, my parents bought a house down there this past year, mm. so I didn't stay in the house, but I lived in a host family, and the other levels didn't have host families. So I guess when you get to high they have host families. So I stayed there, had a car, parents brought a car down. In AA, I stayed in with two pitchers. So we're pretty much paying for the hotels, we're paying for the apartments, the host family I didn't pay for, obviously, but I did give them a good gift towards the end of the year. We all did, whoever lived with them. Mm-hmm. Salary changes, I'm sure you guys know, it goes up as you go along. I can't really tell you how much it goes up, but mm-hmm. just because I don't know off the top of my head, but as you go up in the levels, in the levels of baseball, obviously it goes up, but as you have more tenure, it goes up too, mm-hmm. from what I understand. But yeah, I mean, from when I started, I think I had like a $330 paycheck for every two weeks, and now it's up to like five something so i mean it's obviously going up a little bit mm-hmm. and then the bonuses that come in along like i think it's every three months if you're at a, in double a it's like what fifteen hundred dollars is that what i'm understanding do you guys know anything about that i don't know offhand but at, that sounds about right yeah it's something about that yeah but um living conditions are great salaries you know it is what you make it you know and i mean everyday life it's just the same. i mean it's the same i mean get, getting the field early getting home late it's just the the routine that you need to that you need to come up with that that fits you. You know that's what that's what I had to understand. I mean, college is completely different than fifty six games is completely different than playing 100, 120 games, hundred and twenty games, hundred and forty games, wherever it is. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you just gotta find your routine that fits you and just and stick with it. That's that's the biggest thing for me. Mine with this year was Fortnite, so I mean that's cool for me. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I mean everything everything is awesome i enjoy it i enjoy uh going to different places staying in hotels staying in little towns no one knows about going to dives for restaurants you know at 10 o'clock at night you know all that stuff is cool i mean like i said with the money situation it is what you make it i mean i i I enjoy going different places. I mean, maybe not a lot of people are like that, but I just, I just take it all in, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for meals and nutrition, does the team provide a lot or do you get a a certain per diem that you have to figure out how to spend? Yes, you get per diem, I believe, from my memory. I want to say it's like $25 a day, I believe. Mm -hmm. So you get to spend that on whatever you would like. And since the Cubs won the World Series, they put a lot of money into nutrition every level mm. so each level has a nutritionist mm-hmm. this year we had a girl that actually just got accepted to auburn she's like the lead nutritionist at auburn now so you have everything you need at the affiliate you have your smoothies that you know your protein smoothies your weight gaining smoothies your hydration smoothies um so you, you pretty much have everything you possibly need at the level so i haven't obviously been up to triple a or obviously chicago but Everything is the same. They have nutritionists. They have strength trainers that have your best interest and everything like that. So everything with the Cubs organization is pretty dang good. Allen takes his lead off first. Nobody out second inning. one nothing Cubs. Fastball up. Hit to right center field. Martinez on his horse. Diving attempt. And oh, what a catch made by Connor Myers. Head first diving catch sliding on the warning track, which is field turf in deep right center field. Spectacular catch, and Oscar De La Cruz takes off his cap and waves it at Myers, who just robbed Haverlack probably of a double, maybe a triple. Da-da-da, da-da-da. Wow, what a play by Myers. So uh, right between June and July, you were promoted from high A Myrtle Beach to double A Tennessee, and 
at least in my own head, I kind of figured double A and triple A, that's where the real advanced minor league competition is. And so to, in order to reach that level in the first place is a, it's an achievement. So do you, do you recall how that conversation took place? Was it something that came as, as a routine? Was it a surprise? How, a, what, what was the conversation like when you wound up getting promoted to double A and put in the lineup the very next day? <laughs> it was actually super funny. Buddy Bailey, I'm sure you guys have heard of Buddy Bailey. He's a legend in baseball. He said, uh, hey, keep keep playing hard like two days before this happened. Hey, keep playing hard. Good things are going to happen. I said, okay, like, obviously I'm not going to say anything or like, you know, think about anything. And then after a game, I think it was against Potomac or something like that. I went over three with three hard line outs. As we're shaking hands because we won, he, uh, I was the last one to go. So, hey, I need to talk to you. Come to my office after the after you get dressed and stuff. I said okay. So I go to his office. Every coordinator is in there. We have uh, our strength coach, our strength coordinator in there too. So says, so hey, sit down, sit down. So we sit down and hey, man, you had an okay game tonight. Um, we just need you to do some things better. We need you to hit better. We need you to do this. We need you to do that. And he said, nah, I'm not gonna say what he said, but. No, man, I'm just messing with you. You're going to double A. I was like, oh, shoot, sweet, man. Uh, so I had a big smile on my face. And I, I couldn't stop smiling. I almost broke down in tears because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a cool, it's a cool experience getting getting called up. I can't really explain it just because it's like it takes your words away. But it's a really cool experience and the way he did it. And he even jokes about my car, man. I have a 1996 <laughs> Hyundai Elantra. That's just uh, a bit of me of like a 27th rounder. Um, he's like, hey, is it going to make it? Do we need you to do this? Do we need you to do that? Um, no, I said, buddy, it's going to make it. Don't worry about that. My dad's a mechanic, so he can come get me if anything happens. But, um, but yeah, he pretty much just, you know, he, he's very proud of me, he said, and uh, he said I'm a good outfielder and all that stuff. So he's he's super pumped. He's super pumped for me. So we always had a good relationship, too. He's a tough guy, but he, um, he enjoyed my company. I enjoyed his, so. So something that happened just about a week and a half after you were promoted to to double A, maybe you already know where this is going. Now, uh, major leaguers go into rehab assignments all the time whenever they're injured, but you did get to share a lineup and a clubhouse with Chris Bryant for a couple of games. And uh, unlike Caleb Ferguson, I imagine you know that Chris Bryant is a major league baseball player. So <laughs> I was uh, I was curious, what is it? What is it like? I know you've only had a, a few rehab since that that you've observed at the minor league level, and Chris Bryant's only one guy. But what is what is it mean to a minor league clubhouse when when someone like that comes in for even just a, a couple of days the buzz is unbelievable you hear about it two days maybe two days before and everyone's like oh is he gonna be here is he gonna be here you're checking the lineup seeing if he's gonna be in the lineup and all that stuff and then the one day that i walk in the clubhouse the lineup's like right when you walk in and i see that he's in there in the lineup and i'm like oh my god is he here is he here is he here <laughs> so i walk around and i see him he's like four lockers away from me trying not to stare you know, it's just, it's, it, I'm not trying to be a creep or anything, but it's, uh, it's super, it's super cool to, to see like, you know, the phenom Chris Bryant in the, in the same locker room as you. So, I mean, it's just different, you know, you see what he like, his routines, all that stuff, how he goes about his, his day, how he does, you know, what he does. And it's super cool. You know, he's like six foot seven, not really, but he seemed that big, but, um, no, it's just super cool because like he talks to you. He's he's very very humble. He he just he's a guy. Like he's he's a dude that just wants to play baseball and get better. You know. Mm-hmm. 
So how much feedback do you get about your performance? Are the Cubs showing you lots of stats? You know, you mentioned that you made three hard hit outs. Are you getting, you know, exit velocity stats so that if you make some hard hit outs, you don't get down because you know that you hit the ball well? Or are you getting feedback on your defensive performance? Or do you know what you have to do to get to the next level? Yeah, we have um, every every team I'm pretty sure is has a something called a track man. Mm-hmm. Uh, track man, like, obviously tracks like your your launch angle and how hard you hit it and stuff like that so you can check the next day after a game and see how hard you know you hit it and stuff like that so that's that's a good way to to see how you're doing and see if you're making good contact and all that stuff and and i have confidence in myself that i'm a good outfielder no one really says anything about my outfield play i don't know why but i feel good about my outfield play so i'm confident there so i don't necessarily need feedback in that i mean if i do something wrong obviously that would be nice I think the biggest thing for me is to to advance in the next level with like hitting, you know, because hitting hitting has obviously gotten better this year. But um, there, I mean, coaches are all always there for you, you know, whatever you need anything. Uh, our coaches definitely they give you they give you feedback. They have you know early work for you if you want early work, uh, so you can get there earlier. You can stay late if you want. So they always have something at your fingertips for you to you know take that next step in in getting better. So mm-hmm. that's pretty nice. Well, and I remember reading an article a few years ago about how UPS drivers are also tracked mm-hmm. with, you know, GPS information. Oh, my and... God. Bad. <laughs> it's like whatever you do, all of your jobs, everything is tracked and monitored. So are you uh, getting feedback based on that, too? Or how does that impact your driving job? It's unbelievable, guys. Um, so <laughs> you literally are tracked with everything you do. So I even told my girlfriend, and she doesn't believe me, that they track everything. <laughs> they track how many times you back up, how yeah. fast you go when you're backing up, how how long you go, like how much distance you cover going backwards. Because backwards, obviously, is not safe. Even they have a rear view camera mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It's just not, not totally safe. Uh-huh. So um, the first day that I was on my own driving with UPS, the next day after my first day, they, uh, the supervisor came up to me. Said, hey, Connor. I said, yeah, what's up? He said, you backed 1.3 miles. <laughs> you, uh, your, average, <laughs> your average speed was 3.7, and the average speed has to be like 3.3 or under. So I was like, oh, shoot, that's too far. So, you know, I understand, like, you, you're, um, you're understanding your new route, you know, trying to understand your new route. So uh, we're going to let it slide, but you know, you just can't, you can't be doing that. So it's, just, it's, it's crazy how much you're tracked in UPS and like the rules. I, I think it's because you're part of a union. I told my girlfriend that she's like, she rolls her eyes at me, but um, <laughs> I think it's because you're part of a union and like they have to keep their, they have to cover their backs and stuff like that. I don't, I don't completely understand it, but yeah, but yeah it's, it's crazy how much they cover you. At least you're part of one union. I guess that's good. But um, <laughs> does that make you a better driver to be aware of that? Or are you just constantly thinking like, oh, no, I'm backing up. It's going to ruin my stats. You know, today with how much stuff I had to do, I pretty much just said, you know, I don't care just because I wanted to get done. <laughs> but most of the time I try to keep, uh, try to be aware of how much I'm doing it. I kind of put it in neutral. Neutral doesn't doesn't count as a back. <laughs> so it's definitely uh you gotta you gotta find ways to go about it without having to break the rules but um i try to keep i try to keep it uh, under under the rules you know yeah i was gonna, i was gonna ask about so many baseball players will will tell you that you know when when you're hitting or when you're pitching the last thing you want to be doing is thinking about your performance you just want to go up there and sort of be an autopilot just kind of 
do it by subconscious. And I guess it's it the same when, you, when you're driving. You just can't worry about the stats, can't worry about the performance, just kind of let it happen. Oh, yeah, you can't worry about it because, I mean, if you start, obviously, uh, tight muscles are, are, not, are not quick muscles. So you just really have to just go about it because most people deliver to the same places every day because people just have habits of buying stuff and you just deliver to the same houses every day. So you can fall into that nonchalant attitude where you're just like, oh, this house again, blah, blah, blah. But every situation can be different. So, I mean, you really have to stay focused on on the task at hand every time. So you really just have to stay focused, like I said. So the last thing I wanted to ask is, obviously, as a, as an alum of Old Dominion, you can watch Justin Verlander win the Cy Young, or in this case, almost win the Cy Young. He's, he's no, very few schools can have a, a better major league icon than Justin Verlander, but you did play a couple years with Ryan Yarbrough, who, of course, debuted this year with uh, with the Tampa Bay Rays. I can't assume your relationship with your former collegiate teammate, but I was wondering if you could talk about what it's like if you if you watched him at all in the major leagues, because unlike, say, Caleb Ferguson, you would have had some sort of pre-existing relationship with uh, with Ryan. <laughs> yeah, me and Yarby, we played together for, I think, a year or two. Yarby's an awesome guy. Obviously, I have a nickname for him, Yarby. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he was an awesome guy. Um, I texted him, you know, when he uh, got called up. I was really close with his girlfriend, too. Uh, we were pretty good friends uh, freshman year. And then, obviously, they started dating and stuff like that. So he's, he's an awesome dude. Me and him are close. And then, obviously, I know Ben Verlander, which is Justin Verlander's brother. He's pretty cool. So I never got to meet Justin. But, but yeah, I also talked to Dan Hudson, who was out of ODU, too. So, I mean, we have a pretty rich history in baseball. But Yarby, Yarby was a, a super awesome dude. So hopefully baseball works out and you're doing that for the next decade. But if it doesn't or when you're done with that, whenever it ends, are you interested in continuing to drive? Do you have other plans or are you happy with one of your two current careers, whatever happens? Honestly, I'm focused on one thing right now. And I think you know what that is. Mm-hmm. Like, like every Fortnite. player is. Yeah, Fortnite. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, but yeah, focusing focusing on you know that that dream that I've had since I was a four year old kid. But um, I mean, if if I come to a point and and have a realization with myself where I can't make it to that next level or whatever, I always have this on the back burner, UPS. And then I mean, coaching would be a cool job too. Say I'm in the professional ranks, maybe being like a rehab coach to start out and all that stuff. Uh, I just want to stay in sports as long as possible, honestly. I mean, just like every other baseball player, pretty much. So just Or every athlete, they want to stay in sports as long as possible. So, All right. Well, we appreciate your coming on. You can find Connor on Twitter at underscore CM underscore nine. And uh, we wish you the best with your GPS stats and your TrackMan stats and in the holiday season and all your deliveries and training. And good luck next year, too. I appreciate it, guys. All, all right. the best. Have a good one. You, too. Thank you. All right, so we will take another quick break, and then I will be right back with Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs to talk about the Hall of Fame. Golf to center pretty well hit. Myers racing back, warning track, on the run, makes the catch, and then bangs into the wall and holds on. What a play. Great, great. What a great play. You won't see one better than that. I'll tell you why it's so great, because he caught it right at the wall. And boy, a lot of guys just give up on that ball. Yeah, he's running right there, and he, I mean, he, oh, great catch, great catch. And the wall out there is not padding, it's wood. 
Tradition time to talk Hall of Fame with Jay Jaffe, who now is a Fangraphs writer, so he is in house and uh, he is about to begin his 15th year, I think, doing player profiles for Hall of Fame season. I guess you've already begun. 15th with Jaws. Okay. Uh, and I was doing it, I started the first ballot I ever analyzed was at Futility Infielder, and that was pre Jaws. Right. That was two, the 2002 ballot. So this is uh, uh, the eight, so 18th. Yeah, 2004 was the first Jaws, so that's uh, we're 1950. It's 16. Yeah, 16th time around with Jaws and 18th time around overall. And boy, my God, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, yeah. and that's the entire. You know, like they don't even put candidates on the ballot for 15 years anymore. And uh, uh, you know, if. <laughs> I've run out of them. I mean, I guess you know, like the whole the whole Lee Smith candidacy and the whole Don Mattingly candidacy and uh, the whole Alan Trammell one. The last of the fifteen year guys. Uh, yeah, uh, I bur- I buried them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And you're what two years now away from your own vote, yeah. which I guess means I'm three years away. I think oh I got in the year after you did. Right. But. That's uh, that sounds right. My God, we're we're uh, <laughs> we're, we're getting there, Chris. And and we just uh, uh, saw today on uh, via Twitter that Christina Carl got hers. So yeah. That's she right. is the she is the first of the baseball prospectus founders, and probably the only baseball prospectus founder who's going to get one because everybody mm-hmm. else has uh, gone on to uh, let's just say more sporadic baseball contributions in terms of uh, affiliated uh, outlets. And mm-hmm. uh, still, I think that's very uh, very cool. I know Keith Law gets his uh, yeah. this year too, but you know, it's I think we're going to see uh, some of these changes that arrival of analytics in the Hall of Fame conversation has already wrought. I think uh, you mm-hmm. know are going to be maybe accelerated by. You know, by those of us who've been uh, part of that uh, wave, uh, actually getting the franchise. Yeah, yeah, we'll do our part. So you have already written a bit about the Today's Game ballot, which we could talk about. And of course, you've done a a big questions post, which we will touch on here. So I I guess we can start with the new names. And of course, Mariano Rivera is the, the gimme name on this ballot. And your big question about him was whether it would be unanimous, which... It almost certainly won't, given history and no one else being unanimous. But behind him, we have Roy Halladay, we have Andy Pettit, we have Todd Helton, we have Roy Oswald, I guess. Uh, He's not going to get in, but I wanted to mention him. He had a nice career. Yeah. Lance Berkman. Yeah, Lance Berkman. And Miguel Tejada. I mean, these are there is a very good class of guys who I think are just below the rung of Hall of Famers. And I think, you know, in decades past, before you know the analytics stuff injected itself into the conversation these guys would have stuck around the ballot for years and years maybe not Mm -hmm. amassing the support but uh, they would have been talked about instead of uh, quickly dispatched yeah well as you mentioned in your post there have actually been a lot of guys elected lately historically speaking which uh, we've been talking about the backlog now for years and there still is one yeah it's it's amazing (laughs) it's uh, yes um 
it's uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 16 guys over the last five years. And even if even if there were a shutout this year, it would still be the largest over a six year span. And it's it's quite a wave. And you know, we've seen you know a lot of a lot of first ballot guys. We've seen a lot of guys who stuck around for a long time finally get in. And finally, I think we're starting to see the top of the ballot clear off here, except for the uh, the more polarizing guys who are sticking around. And uh, we 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 can get to that. No need to dive into. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the guys who are sucking the oxygen out of the room immediately. I, I, <laughs> right. So Holiday obviously has the extra narrative here in that, unfortunately, he is not around to go in. And we've seen in the past that when people have met an untimely end, sometimes there is a, a boost to their posthumous candidacy. And it seems like that is likely to happen with Halliday, but I don't know if it needs to happen with Halliday. Maybe it will make a difference to how quickly he goes in, but it seems like he is deserving regardless. Yeah, I you know, I think it's easy to just look at the two hundred and three wins and the twenty seven hundred and some odd innings and see a guy who's who was very good but didn't have quite a long enough career despite the two Cy Young Awards. But, you know, the the more closely you look, I mean, there's he just had a a stretch where he was by far the most valuable pitcher in the majors for a a 10-year span, 2002 to 2011. And he was, um, you know, a workhorse of the type that we do not see anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. completing, you know, as many as nine games a year. And he did that like four times, led the league in innings four times. He was just, he piled a lot of innings into a short time, which may be why he did not make it to 3,000 innings, which is kind of the cutoff usually in terms of whether pitchers get consideration. I'm forgetting, but besides Pedro Martinez, you have to go back, there's just not a ton of recent examples of starting pitchers who got in with fewer than 3,000 innings. Mm-hmm. But Halliday stands up very well. I think when you look at sort of him sort of as, as a bridge between the Schilling and Messina generation who, you know, were just had incredible longevity and maybe not quite as high peaks. Those guys weren't winning Cy Youngs. They were up against uh, uh, the Randy Johnsons of the world and the Greg Maddoxes of the world, I guess, at, at, at points. But Halliday, I think, is, you know, I guess about the same same age as CC Sabathia and that generation is sort of missing a little bit in terms of uh, mm-hmm. their presence by the peak score the 7 year peak score he's got a higher peak than any active starter right now and one that's uh, just about just over the line relative to the average hall of fame starter the the only other guy who's active who has anything close is Clayton Kershaw mm-hmm. you know and then you're talking to guys who are you know 3 to uh, 3 or 4 or 5 wins below him for that peak uh, Granke and Verlander and uh, Scherzer and guys like that. So, you know, so Halliday really does stand up, stand out as this transitional guy. And I think, you know, when you consider that plus the no hitters, the postseason no hitter, just the two Cy Youngs, I think it's pretty easy to come around to the idea that he, that he's uh, Hall of Fame worthy. And I, you know, I would have guessed before that it was like maybe a two or three year path for him. Now I think with his demise, I think it's it's very possible we see him get in. But I could also see him still falling uh, a little bit short because uh, we just don't see a lot of non three hundred game winning starters get in. And so I don't, I, we're not at the point yet when we can take for granted the fact that one with uh, just 203 wins is going to sail in uh, mm-hmm. on the first ballot, you know, even with the uh, the other factors. Yeah. Well, it does seem like we're at the point now where looking at the historical benchmarks for starting pitchers, it, you almost have to just 
toss out most of yeah. history, it seems like. I, I don't know whether you've considered uh, adjusting am, the Jaws am, baseline. But. I, this is this is this is something that keeps me awake at night. I've written, <laughs> I've written I have written half a dozen articles. Really, I think I think it started with Halliday's death, actually. Halliday's death, Johan Santana's arrival on the ballot last year, and then things I did when after moving to Fangraphs about Felix, about Cece, about Verlander and about Granky. It's sort of a series and I talk, I'm, uh, you know, and I'm just, I kind of keep revisiting it and it's like, oh my God, Jay, would you just, you know, like make up your mind about this? But it's about how, you know, I think really we are going to have to take a look at these, you know, at, at different standards for these, for these, uh, uh, pitchers in what I would call the workload constraint era. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys are just not going to get it worked as hard. They're not going to get as many innings and, or, you know, or as many wins. They're just the, the shapes of their careers are going to be very different than, you know, let's say Burt Blylevin and Gaylord Perry and Steve Carlton and those mm-hmm. guys that I grew up, you know, thinking of as, as, as the yeah. benchmarks for a Hall of Fame career. Maybe not Blylevin initially, but obviously, you know, looms large in, in terms of the arrival of Jaws on the scene. Yeah. Because people have been saying, oh, is the 300 game winner dead for decades, right? And Yeah, and then Randy Johnson and, and Greg right. Maddox blew, and, and Roger now, Maddox blew past it. Now, now it does look like it's yeah. it, like it really could be a good long time. I mean, you know, uh, Dan Zimborski and I did something together. I guess it was in connection to maybe to, Ver, to, the, to Verlander uh, late in the year when Verlander got to 200. And it was uh, uh, looking at 300 and... Dan using zips came up with these, uh, you know, these uh, probabilities, and to me they looked a bit high because zips is still using what's probably now maybe a, a, an outmoded expectation for how how much work these guys are going to get going forward. I don't think we're going to see a lot of two hundred inning guys going forward, and mm-hmm. you know you just can't pencil in uh, Zach Granke for a bunch of two hundred inning seasons uh, any more the way you could. Um, and I think that's going that is going to change things, and we're going to have to consider that. I think we also need to go back and consider, you know, talking about the today's game ballot. Uh, Oral Hershiser's on it, and he's mm-hmm. kind of, I think, one of the maybe a little bit weaker than, say, David Cohn or Brett Saberhagen. But those are guys who came and went on the BBWA ballots fairly quickly and I think deserve a longer look. And I would like to see them getting longer looks on the, uh, uh, on the committee stuff. And because I think you could see them, Dave Steeb being another one, I think you could see them as, as, uh, Kind of fitting in this same sort of holiday, similar workload where not everybody is going to be, you know, throwing 275 innings a year for, for 15 years. Yeah. Well, where does Andy Pettit fit in with that group with you? Cause he, if you were going by Fangraphs, where I think he actually has a higher career Fangraphs where than Halliday does, and he's comparable at baseball reference too, but obviously did not have the same kind of peak. So yeah, I have, I have Pettit 90th in Jaws, just a much lower peak and a much lower career. Yeah. 47.2 Jaws, where Halliday is at uh, 57.5 and Messina is at 63.8 and Schilling at 64.1. So Pennant's way down there. And, and you know, I, look, Andy Pettit was a very nice pitcher and a personal mm-hmm. favorite, in, you know, in a yeah. lot of ways. I, I, I watched Andy Pettit pitch probably more innings than just about anybody in the last uh, yeah, me too. Uh, 20 years and uh, have, you know, great affection for, for him as a fan. And uh, certainly, I mean, you know, going back to just the, I think the 2003 and 2009 postseasons, just how how good he was, in, in, you know, in both of those and, you know, kind of erasing, I think, a lot of the uh, bad memories of 2001 when he was 
was, you know, allegedly tipping his pitches in the World Series, and and uh, you know, pretty much that was the difference in in that one. So, but you know, he wasn't he was you know he he racked up a lot of a lot of strikeouts because of his longevity, but he wasn't really a high strikeout guy. You know, he was. Better at run prevention than you think, given his 3.85 ERA. But uh, I'm still not a threat to win an ERA title. Never led the league in ERA or strikeouts. Never won a Cy Young. Only had a few All Star appearances. You know, for him, it's the big selling point is the postseason stuff, and he holds some you know some pretty interesting records. Uh, there are 44 starts, 19 wins. 276 and two-thirds innings. I mean, that's like a 1975 season worth of worth of work. But again, the ERA is about the same, 381. So, you know, it's not like we're talking about, you know, Bob Gibson in the, you know, in the, in the you know, 60s World Series. Right. And then the other borderline guy is Todd Helton, who uh, has the kind of course bias going mm-hmm. against him. And we've seen how Larry Walker has struggled to get in and probably a better player than Todd Helton overall, although maybe had more of a durability issue. But Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think Helton is I I think that that's that's almost exactly it. I mean Helton was a you know by the numbers we have, Helton was a plus fielder at first base, which is not easy to do. But he added uh, he added some value at first base. He was not much of a base runner, though. For a guy who spent his entire career in Coors, you know, he's got one one batting title, a triple slash uh, title actually, three seventy two, with just some eye opening video game numbers in the year two thousand. But he never won an MVP award, and you, you, you know, whereas Walker won the MVP award, won three batting titles, played only what about half his career in Colorado shorter career but was excelled at a tougher position defensively was outstanding on the bases even though he wasn't uh, you know a, a huge stolen base threat he just he was a smart base runner and uh, just added value everywhere to the point that you know even with uh, less than perfect attendance you know because in part because I think he sat he sat out against some lefties and uh, had some injury issues obviously and uh, you know kind of walked away from the game when he was still actually very clearly able to to uh, keep playing, but he had, uh, uh, you know, physical issues. It'll be strange to see if Todd Helton does better because, my God, I mean, Larry Walker's a top 10 right fielder and, and mm-hmm. you know, by, by my numbers, and, and Todd Helton is, a, I think, a top 15 first baseman. But, you know, there's, there's, there's a difference there. I mean, the bar is higher in right field. And I'd be disappointed if if uh, if whatever Helton was doing uh, outstripped whatever Walker's doing because I've certainly invested a lot in trying to convince people about Walker and now to it just feels like a Sisyphean task to yeah to to give up on that and start to start pumping Helton. Yeah, it does, and it's it's funny when you go to Baseball Reference and they give you the you know neutralize the stats and they give you the most extreme environments so you can neutralize the 1968 Dodgers or 2000 Rockies is the other. Is one the 2000 Rockies you. the actual yeah, other one? Okay, that's the is. one. Yeah, Todd Helton. <laughs> yeah. Todd Helton hit 372, 463, 698, and that was only good for a 163 OPS plus. I mean, like, right? Yeah, you know he, that was that was not even his career best. He had he has a a couple of 165. If a couple years later in 03 yeah. and 04 and you know his batting averages and and uh, on base percentages are you know 20 points lower and his slugging percentage is about 70 points lower and yeah and and yet that's the, the footprint is the same yeah well there is a tendency to just toss it out because it was the moon and in, the yeah. numbers don't count but you can't adjust for those things and even when right. you do adjust for them he's still really good not yeah. everyone was slugging 698 for the 2000 Rockies so right yeah Right. Yeah, I, you know, I I think he's I think he's got a case. I think given how crowded the ballot is, I mean, if it's a choice between 
giving your vote to Walker and giving your vote to Helton. I'd rather you give your vote to Walker at this at this stage, but uh, I do think that Helton should be in the Hall of Fame too. And or I think he's got a he's got a pretty much a borderline case. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't be you know sad at all to see him there. But he's you know if you're ranking the candidates as you know in terms of the I'm not sure he's I'm not sure he's one of the top ten candidates on the ballot yet. Let's put it that way. I, I'll reserve judgment on that until I've uh, uh, broken down mm-hmm. the entire ballot because I think that there are some things that uh, you know they're worth considering there pro yeah. and con. So the holdovers from last year, the top vote getters, Edgar had 70.4%, and then you get down to Messina, 63.5%, Clemens and Bonds in the high 50s, Schilling in the low 50s. Do you foresee anyone there making a, a big jump or getting in? This is, of course, Edgar's last shot. Yeah, I mean, I think Ed, I think Edgar's close enough that he's going to get in. I think 70 70%, 70.4%. When I've looked at it, 19 out of 20 guys who had 70% and eligibility remaining got in the next year. This is since 1966, uh, the return of annual balloting. The only one who didn't was Jim Bunning, who uh, eventually got in via the Veterans Committee, but really had vote shares that are all over the place from from you know over the last I think it's like five years of his of his uh, time on the ballot. And this was before Jim Bunning was uh, was vocal about his politics, and uh, <laughs> you know, so it's not quite the the shilling parallel. But uh, anyway, I do think Edgar's. I, I I hope Edgar gets in, and I do think you know it's a pretty good chance he'll get in. But it's gonna like Tim Raines a couple of years ago. I'm not gonna believe it until I see it. Uh, it's you know mm-hmm. it's gonna be a nail biter. Messina, I think, is probably. A year away, uh, mm-hmm. I think sixty three and a half percent last year. I, lo- I, you know, when I've researched it, it looks like he's most likely, you know, going to get to where Edgar is this year, plus or minus a couple points, and be well set up to get to get over seventy five next year. Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling. Really, that's the question. I mean, <laughs> these guys all basically just ran a year off the clock without gaining much ground. I mean, Schilling did get back above fifty percent last year, but he's net below where he was two years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, before uh, you know, before his his mouth really started to work against him. Mm-hmm. You know, and Bonds and Clemens really didn't have the same kind of spur upward that they did the last the, the previous two years with the sunsetting of the uh, the inactive writers, uh, which removed a lot of no votes. Uh, from the pool, and then the uh, the election of Bud Selig, which caused a lot of holdouts to say, you know what, if Bud's in, I don't see why these guys aren't in. Right? There was not, there wasn't any. You know, they had the Joe Morgan letter last year, and maybe that gave people some pause. You know, I've my view on that Joe Morgan letter was that it was complete garbage. <laughs> obviously, it was yeah. very obviously the hall putting its thumb on the scale, and I don't believe for a moment that you're going to get Willie Mays boycotting the induction of Barry Bonds, for example, or, or mm-hmm. you know some of these other guys. I think that's an, I think that's a fairly idle threat. But you know those these guys uh, they need to make some headway here because they're running out of time. This is this is they've got this this year and three others, and they can't be gaining three points a year and expect to get in. You got to be gain, you know you got to be running uh, uh, you know seven eight points uh, a year you know even to make it close. And I think the thing about them is is that they've overwhelmingly been supported by new voters. Uh, twenty four out of twenty five the last two years for Clemens. Twenty three out of twenty five for Bonds. You know we'll see how quickly the electorate continues to turn over. You know, if they're getting 15, 20 new votes a year uh, and losing 15, 20 no votes, mm-hmm. you know, this can happen. But, you know, last year they only gained a few yeses apiece. I mean, like you literally could count on one hand uh, the net number of yeses they gained and they can't afford that again. Yeah. If I could snap my fingers and get anyone in, it would be Messina, I think. I mean, Edgar, maybe because it's his last chance, but 
Messina just is so deserving. He was a personal favorite and sure. uh, clears the bar by so much. And I, I was watching, uh, I think someone tweeted the gif of him the other day where he refused to come yes. out of the game. And yes, he was I saw you that know, too. yelling at Joe Torre. You get back, you get back yeah. <laughs> And I was thinking like, maybe that is what he needs. Like he needs that image, you know, that right. kind of like Jack Morris. Like, that I'm sort not, of, that I'm toughness. The, yes, yeah, so I'm that. not leaving this game. Like I, I hope that everyone saw that and, <laughs> yeah. and thinks of Messina that way. Yeah, because putting, maybe I'm, that'll do it. Yeah, I'm putting that. In, and I think Pitching Ninja was, was tweeting uh, a couple of his uh, – uh, knuckle curves mm, yeah. uh, pitches and that you know that was a singular pitch i mean it uh, yeah. it stands out and i think people i think the the thing about messina is i think a lot of people you know remember the yankees tenure which he came up just short in the cy young race or mm-hmm. you know, actually probably should have been a lot closer to the cy, cy young race roger clemens stole it with better run support in 2001 but uh, you know when they came up just short in the world series uh, despite some, you know, his his really strong performances in the postseason, and and people forget just like that he was even better when he was in Baltimore. I mean, he was, mm-hmm. a, you know, he was a guy who who if he'd won twenty games, and you know, we know how how fickle the nature of offensive support is, he probably would have won a Cy Young, mm-hmm. you know, and the narrative on him, and then you go back to a Tom Verducci SI thing. Uh, that I referenced when I was writing my my book, the Cooperstown Casebook, and it was like, why can't this guy win twenty games? It's like, <laughs> you know, you know, why can't you, you know, get into a twenty first century mindset about this guy? It's it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not about the wins; it's about the run prevention, it's about the strikeouts and the overall dominance, and 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 he, he checks those boxes. And really, if he if he'd had spent the first you know nine years of his career in New York and then gone to Baltimore, or vice you know, instead of vice versa, or first ten years. Uh, whatever, I think he'd be in the Hall of Fame, you know, based on those great Yankee years, even if he didn't quite live up to it in Baltimore, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it's just it's just the way the narrative works for him. Yeah, I do think he's getting in. And I think I'm very confident that, you know, this is this is his sixth year of eligibility. He's got 12, you know, 11 and a half points to go. He'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not I'm not worried about him, even if he finishes a vote short this year mm-hmm. although it is just taking votes away from other people if he does linger on the ballot i'm for me if i had to say you know one guy and i'm and if i'm confident enough that edgar is going to get in which i you know i'm i i worry about that one i have a I, there's a family connection there my my mm. uh my uncle worked for the Mariners for several years as, as the uh, the head concierge of their Diamond Club, and uh, mm. uh, I refer to the uh, to that side of the family as the uh, uh, the Edgar Martinez wing of the Jaffe family. And <laughs> and uh, you know it would be you know he passed away a couple of years ago when I was still doing my book, but uh, uh, he was uh, on my mind a lot at that period. And so I would be you know I'd be very happy for for him and for Edgar and, you know, think fondly for my, uh, uh, my cousins who are uh, big Mariners fans too, that, uh, mm. uh, that he gets in. So I'm hoping for that, but like further down Walker's a guy I really want to see. And Scott Rowland is a guy I really yeah. want to see. And we can talk about these guys here as we go down the ballot. But uh, um, you know, if I could just magically put one guy in, I think I'd, I'd probably go for some guy who's really struggling for support further down the ballot. Yeah. Well, like you, I am very curious to see what happens with Vizquel this year because he was at 37% last year. And as you've shown, when you start that high, you tend to 
get there. And yeah. uh, that's, I mean, I'd rather always be in the position of advocating for someone than than tearing down someone's I, case. I but. took I took I took the Omar Vizquel essay out of the book. I I was like, <laughs> you know, I've got I've got you know fit whatever fifteen sixteen essays in here advocating strongly for candidates, and yeah. like this is going to look really horseshit if I if, <laughs> if I've yeah. got one. Yeah, right. One but, and, it's, and, it, and it's Omar, and I'm like pissing all over his candidacy. Right. Yeah. I was like, well, you <laughs> so know, I don't want to be in that position, yeah, but I just. I just like, don't get it. I mean, I yeah. guess I get it, but I just don't. <laughs> well, it's you know the the problem is it's just this hook. This you know this idea that he is that he is the twenty you know the the late twentieth century, early twenty first century Aussie Smith yeah. took hold, and it just does not hold water. No, except in the most the loosest definition of the term, he was a wor- much worse hitter than Aussie when you when you adjust for mm-hmm. uh, his surroundings and uh, include his base running in the equation because Aussie was a like top shelf base runner and Omar was you know really didn't add anything mm-hmm. you know it was a big difference in in, in like Ozzy used his base running to be more or less a break even offensive contributor at his peak Omar never had that and then the defensive stuff I mean you know we're we're not always we don't don't have the luxury of using full careers worth of defensive runs saved and have mm-hmm. ultimate zone rating uh, as a check on that to sort of give you a, an upper and a lower bound you know or whatever two differing viewpoints in the same way that uh, that we do with some of the more modern guys but we're basing this all on total zone runs or mostly on total zone runs and it's just not even close i mean yeah. ozzy's got fantastic numbers you know was playing in a time when there were more chances but once you adjust for that was still getting to far more balls per game you know Omar was certainly capable of making great plays and you know but played on teams that really I mean those Indians teams they they need they were not good at run prevention and uh, some small amount of that responsibility does does fall on him and he just did not have uh, the range of Ozzy Smith I think when you get down to it uh, was, mm-hmm. was 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 the big thing great hands not the same range and you know you add it you add it all up on both sides of the ball and he's uh, you know hundreds of runs short of, of where uh, Ozzy was and you know mm-hmm. it's going to be I think I, I and I said I said this even before he hit the ballot based on my experience when I wrote about his him at, at the end of the, his playing career you know that he's going to be the next Jack Morris in terms of polarizing candidates and and mm-hmm. that has uh, as so far every indication I've seen is that's true right and then further down the ballot there are a bunch of guys who are better than Omar Vizquel but are just kind of hanging around and uh, we mentioned Walker and there's many who you know he's got the steroid baggage the PED baggage and same with Sheffield and Sheffield I guess is not deserving by jaws but yeah i i, I put man hall I, of fame hitter yeah hall of fame hitter and look i you know i think sheffield is such a defensive outlier in terms of the metrics that i think it's yeah. fair to question them i think mm-hmm. you know you could you could say well that seems a little extreme and you could also think consider the extenuating circumstances particularly of his miserable time in milwaukee which i right tried to show i mean like this was a guy who was drug tested because he was you know d- simply because he was he was black and he was dwight gooden's nephew at a mm. time when dwight gooden was having drug problems you know he had a mouth on him and so the brewers made his life miserable they mm-hmm. they they accused him of faking an injury and and sent him down to the minor leagues and uh um, they really screwed up a potentially great young player about as badly as you can and i think 
you know, that that really had a, had a huge impact on, you know, I mean, like I'm just looking as, for his Milwaukee career alone, four seasons, not even four full seasons, a, a, a total of 294 games. He was 30 runs below average in the infield for those four seasons. And, yeah. you know, and I think if they just moved him to the outfield earlier, he probably would have been a much better player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder what his war would look like if you just made him a, a DH at the point in his career that Edgar was, whether that yeah, might actually benefit it, it, him. It probably, it probably would have. I mean, but, you know, he was a gamer. He like, yeah, I remember, I know you remember, you know, when he was with the Yankees, there was a point mm-hmm. when, when he volunteered to go, to, to go play third base and, and, mm-hmm. uh, because they had so many injuries and and you know there there was a period like that that last abbreviated year when he did play first base you know because that was what the team needed i mean he was a guy who you know was athletic enough that you could stuff him in those in, in those spots and and mm-hmm. and nominally get by because his bat was always going to be able to carry whatever position you put him in but you know the difference between him and Manny to me i mean like manny inarguably a better hitter but manny yeah. manny failed two tests mm-hmm. like failed two tests and not you know like after it was very clear what the consequences were and sheffield you know by by the indications that we have sheffield worked out with Barry Bonds and Balco and and didn't didn't really think it was on the level and and got out of it and uh, you know stop stop doing it and uh, you know we don't have any other evidence to to connect him to it so he doesn't have a positive test and it sounds like he was pretty just disgruntled with the with the Balco experience yeah. i mean like look tom verducci who is i think one of you know obviously one of the biggest names in in the industry also one of the more let's just call it law and order focused voters and that he's not going to consider anybody who's uh strongly connected to steroids he wrote he wrote about this and i'm learning you know he that he thought sheffield was getting a bad rap mm-hmm. he and i have both independently uh investigated the claims about uh the the uh, intentional errors that sh- that Sheffield, you know, claimed to have committed early in his career, found that those stories don't hold water. So there's, a, I think, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of myth about Gary, Gary Sheffield, and I, I think that if it wasn't there, I think he would be in much better shape as far as the the ballot is concerned. Mm-hmm. And then Roland is the guy who has the defensive case that Sheffield doesn't have the opposite in that sense. And oh, he's got I the just... he's got the case that that Omar wishes he had. I mean, like <laughs> right, he's got yeah. the, he's got the numbers there, and he's you know, and he's got uh, uh, he's got some gold gloves, and and you mm-hmm. know what he doesn't have is is tre- the tremendous longevity. Yeah, you know, he had a lot of injury problems in the back half of his career, and uh, man, that guy could play. I mean, yeah. and it was a legitimate threat on both sides of the ball. I mean, like with the two thousand four Cardinals, especially, just a monster mm-hmm. year. And then, uh, you know, he just he's a wonderful player. I, I I always really liked watching him, and and yeah. uh, was rather disheartened that uh, he came in at just ten percent last year. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's one I'm going to be. You know, I, in retrospect, actually, I, I I wish I had included uh, his essay in the book. Um, not that it helped Andrew Jones, who finished with seven percent uh, <laughs> last year, but you know, it may maybe it helped Walker. He moved up. He he had some big gains. Moved from the low twenties to the to the mid thirties. Mm-hmm. So I I wish I could have given Roland that spotlight and hope that people found their way to that uh, to that profile because. Uh, uh, he needs the love. Yeah. All right. And uh, yeah, Billy Wagner's still hanging around down there. And uh, yeah. we don't have to rehash, I well, guess, the Wagner versus Hoffman yeah, wars well, from last well, year. But. But, but look, I mean, I think we, I think we, you know, I think the fact that Hoffman is in mm-hmm. probably helps Wagner's case. I think if Lee Smith gets in, and I think that Lee Smith is going to get in via the mm-hmm. today's game ballot because he is just so clearly, I mean, this is like this. It, 
it looks like a setup, frankly. You know, there's just the path for Lee Smith to election is just, you know, as plain as day. There's just no nobody to challenge him, particularly on the player side from among the, the other the other candidates there. Mm-hmm. If those two guys get in, Wagner starts to look a bit better in terms of, you know, you know just the, the qualifications. Yes, he's always going to be short on innings, but man, the dominance is just off the charts. It's lowest mm-hmm. opponent, opponent's batting average and uh, highest strikeout rate of any pitcher with that level. And I guess, you know, if Craig Kimbrell holds out long enough, he'll probably surpass those. But era adjusted, you've still got Wagner uh, with those feats and also doing it from the left side, which we've never seen before on, right. on, on quite that level. And, uh, I love Billy Wagner's story too. I mean, the fact that he's not a natural lefty, that he learned to, to, to throw left-handed mm-hmm. uh, after breaking his arm twice and just that he came from extreme poverty and, and it was really clawed his way up. And I, I hope Billy Wagner makes it someday. All right. Well, I was going to wrap up with the today's game ballot there since you've just completed a series about it. And it's uh, pretty slim pickings, as you were just saying. And there are guys who are not eligible who are probably better than the guys who are. Yeah, it's uh, the the players. I mean, I, I love Oral Hershiser. I grew up a Dodger fan. 1988, I was a freshman in college. So that one's always going to be with me. He's, you know, he is... Uh, uh, a baseball hero of my youth. Mm-hmm. I wish I could mount a stronger case for him. I think you have to give extraordinary credit to the postseason, which you know, re- to, to be honest, the p- voters used to do, especially in the you know in the pre-war, pre-television era. You can find a lot of guys whose stats don't make sense within the context of the Hall of Fame, and then you, then you look and oh, he had two really good World Series, like Lefty mm-hmm. Gomez or Jess Haynes, guys who are or Catfish Hunter, guys who are f- way far down the Jaws list, you know, in terms of their regular season value, but had some shining moments in the postseason. Oral, you know, had had great ones in obviously 88, but he also had, you know, he also had a nice run in 1995 with the Indians after he'd had shoulder surgery, after he'd gone through, you know, a, a, a surgery that was almost as revolutionary as Tommy John's surgery for his labrum by the same doctor, Dr. Frank Job. You know, so there's there's something there, but you know, I can't put him in before I got David Cohn and 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 Brett Saberhagen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I think those guys are legitimately stronger. They can't even get on the ballot. But everybody else, I mean, Joe Carter, come on, <laughs> you know, he's on, he's on the ballot because of one hit. Yeah, uh, Will Clark, I think, you know, is sort of the Don Mattingly of the ballot, you know, and just like. Boy, there was a time when Will Clark was, you know, one of the best hitters in baseball and, and mm-hmm. maybe, you know, the best first baseman in baseball. But that time just did not last all that long. Who else we got? I'm trying to think who else is who, who else was on the player side on that thing. Um, yeah, but Harold Baines, Albert uh, Bell. Uh. Yeah, I, you know, Bell had a Bell had a, a brief peak where he just yeah. put up monster numbers. Baines. Mm-hmm. You know, professional hitter. I mean, you know, <laughs> like ultimate, you know, almost the ultimate compiler, but just not quite, didn't have, didn't have uh, quite the value, didn't have, like, he wasn't as good a hitter as, as Edgar Martinez, and he had almost as many games at DH as Edgar did, and, you know, you just, you can't justify that. Mm-hmm. It's the other side of the ballot, the non, the non-players is a little bit more interesting, at least. I think you could look at Pinella and Davey Johnson and Charlie Manuel and see, you know, there are managers who they sort of resemble in the Hall of Fame, but they all, they, none of them quite separate from the pack. And, you know, Johnson has the high winning percentage in a short career. Likewise with Manuel, Pinella, long career. They all only have the one championship, and Manuel's the only one who got back to a second World Series even. And mm-hmm. and to me, I think that's a deal breaker. I know it's hard to get back to the back to the World Series, but... 
you got to win that second pennant. And I, I like, where's why is Jim Leland not on this ballot? He's got three pennants in the championship, and and mm. you know, winning percentage that's right there with Pinella. But the one I keep coming back to is as pro as the standout is George Steinbrenner. Yeah, you know, I mean, love him or hate him, I you know he's he rebuilt the Yankees into you know the most valuable property in professional sports, and put money back into the team in a way that god you know we need this this game right now needs needs a dozen steinbrenners who, yes. who want who want to win first and you know damn the cost yeah um, right. as opposed as signing opposed, those 80s free agent contracts that's, yeah well just yeah. i mean but just like the just the mandate first to win and you know and mm-hmm. and, and you know the i think obviously the the two suspensions and and the reputation deserve it from the 70s of being quite the tyrant you know work against him but uh you know he did change he did stay out of the way of his baseball operations in the second phase of his career and you have obviously you have firsthand experience uh, uh inside the yankee organization uh, to get a little bit of a look at that but yeah i think he's a I, you know you can't tell the story of baseball without george steinbrenner full mm-hmm. stop Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't, there's nobody else on that ballot with the possible exception of Smith, really, you know, who had that saves lead for more than a decade. You could maybe say that about maybe Hershiser, but it's just, this is, this is a weak class by comparison, a weak mm-hmm. ballot. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we could get you on before you are fully embroiled. I know it, it has begun, but <laughs> it has begun. But you know, look, if I I got tired of doing this, I wouldn't I wouldn't dive into it with both you know as wholeheartedly as I do before Thanksgiving. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, this is uh, this is fun for me, especially at this time of year. Especially you know when 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 there's not much going on in free agency, you might as well talk about this stuff because yeah. everybody's talking about where's. Manny Machado going, where's Bryce? You know, the world does not need me weighing in on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd much rather weigh in on this ahead of everybody else and, and, and have uh, enlightened conversations uh, about it, you know, early in the game. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you can pick up the Cooperstown casebook if you're looking for Christmas gifts. It's evergreen. And you can find Jay on Twitter at J underscore Jaffe. And you can soon read all of his many profiles of all the candidates on the ballot this year at fangraphs.com. Thank you, Jay. All right. Sure thing, Ben. Thanks a lot. So that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks to listener John for drawing our attention to Connor's tweet. And thanks to everyone for listening. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. And if you are grateful for this podcast, you can show it by signing up on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Pledging some small monthly amount to keep the podcast going, as have the following five listeners. Paul Ferraro, Matthew Yo, Mariana Sanders, Michael Mandelbaum, and Seth Resnick. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You've got a few more days to sign up for the Effectively Wild Secret Santa if you'd like to participate as I am. See the link in the show page at Fangraphs or in the Facebook group. Have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to talk to you early next week. I guess I'll pack my things.